0: Today I want to talk about one of the things that I think anybody who grew up in evangelical Christian culture can relate to. Many people loved this activity. Plenty of people hated it. I am, of course, in the latter camp. I fucking hated it. I'm going to talk about summer camp. I'm going to talk about Christian camps. I did go to winter camp also, but I actually hated that less because it was only a weekend. There was also snow, and so we got to do a lot of really fun winter stuff. Growing up in California in a place where it doesn't snow regularly, it was nice, you know, getting up into the mountains to the snow. We would do all kinds of pranks, like we would often take mattresses out of the cabins and use them as sleds, (laughs) which was really fun. We also got to play hockey, which was really cool and actually a fun fact about me, one of my favorite sports to watch and to play. So that was cool. Winter camp was fine. Summer camp, on the other hand, was a fucking nightmare. So what exactly was it about Christian summer camp that was so terrible for so many people? I set out to do a little research for this, and I wanted to find other people's thoughts because I've had conversations with some of my friends who I know are also kind of in their own stages of exploring other religious beliefs or other forms of spirituality, not necessarily deconstructing like I am, but, you know, just kind of relearning their identity when it comes to their religious beliefs. And we all agree that summer camp was awful. In my research, I couldn't really find anything very specific. In fact, one of the more concerning things about the information that's out there online is that if you just search christian summer camps you're met with website after website and search result after search result of literal christian summer camps like advertising their camps which is strange to me and maybe it's not strange to anybody else but i just i don't think of At least the camps that I was familiar with growing up, I don't think of them as these big global organizations with websites and reach and, you know, putting their offerings out there online. It just, it feels weird. And so that was interesting. And after just searching Christian summer camps, I decided to try my experience at Christian summer camp. And it was all positive. It was overwhelmingly positive. I had to comb through results just to find articles that were so positive, but weren't actually endorsed by these camps themselves that weren't actually hosted on these websites. And don't get me wrong, that's fantastic. If the majority of people out there had positive experiences attending these Christian summer camps, that's great. It's better than the alternative, which would be the majority of people having experiences like mine, but it was still a little weird to me, Why is nobody talking about this? Because even if the majority of people are having positive experiences, and the majority of millennials who are now in their 30s had positive experiences when they were in junior high and high school attending these camps, that's still not everybody, right? Like, logically, it's not everybody. So where is the other perspective? So then I did something that you probably shouldn't do when you're trying to conduct honest, unbiased research. I changed up my Google search a little bit, and I typed in bad experiences with Christian summer camp. Because I wanted to find something, and maybe it's a little personal, I wanted to find something to sort of justify my own reaction to my own experiences, I don't know. but. I found a couple things, still not a lot, but some really interesting perspectives. And one of these perspectives is an article I read by an author named Katie Hirschberger on a website called Long Reads. And it's all about her experience at an evangelical Christian summer camp, both as a camper and later on as a counselor. And I was drawn in by her narrative because it's very similar to my own. I was a camper and then at the same camp, when I was a little older, I was a counselor. My own experience being a counselor was a million times better than a camper, because again, yeah, I fucking hated summer camp as a camper. But it's still all just a really interesting experience. And reading Katie's story about what camp meant to her and kind of how that meaning shifted as she grew up. It reminded me a lot of my own experiences, but also there were aspects of her story where I was just like "Mm, can't relate. Like she really enjoyed it there for a while, and that's great. Again, even in a narrative that might not be so positive, she's still very honest about how meaningful her camp experiences were to her throughout different parts of her life. And so I want to go over a few of the points in Katie's essay that really stood out to me the most, um, that I found most profound. Uh, First and foremost, Katie makes it very clear that she was raised Catholic. And while there is a lot of overlap between Catholicism and Evangelical Christianity, some of the basic tenets are very different. Um, And Katie goes on about how, you know, she was raised to believe that we're born with Christ inside of us and we're born, you know, close to God. Well, those of us that come from evangelical Christian backgrounds know that we're born into sin and we're born sinners and are doomed to hell until we uh, ask God for that relationship ourselves. And it's something very active as opposed to something that's a little more passive. And so Katie talks about this in terms of Being surrounded by people who feel like they have to ask for forgiveness and ask to have this relationship with God while she's never had to do that and she actually talks about a moment where um, one of the counselors kind of corners her and asks her if she's ever been saved and she has to explain that she didn't realize she had to ask. And so she talks about how, at first, it didn't seem like it was much of a problem that she was Catholic at a, quote, non-denominational summer camp, but she also explains how once she got a little older, she realized that she was kind of an outsider, and she mentions that there were a few other Catholic campers, Um, but she also talks about how she came to understand the term non-denominational to mean non-Catholic. And I feel for her, and I see where she's coming from. Another part of Katie's essay that really stood out to me, and is something that will definitely show up as sort of a recurring theme during this podcast, is the idea of chastity, and sex, and whether sex is good or bad. So the camp that Katie was at was an all-girls camp, and so she talks about how difficult that was once she became a teen, you know, with hormones raging and how she's around mostly girls, but sometimes, you know, you see a boy, um, she mentions, like, maybe on the kitchen staff or another camper's brother drops them off. And i thought this was a really profound statement to make she talks about you know while some of her friends at camp were talking about how they didn't date they courted with the ultimate goal being to marry the person that god has chosen for them she says i just fantasized about having a boyfriend and i think that that's something everybody who grew up in this culture can relate to when you're 14, 15, 16, you're not necessarily looking for a marriage. You're not looking for a lifelong partner. You might say you are because that's what the people around you in the church are telling you you should want, but at the end of the day, we're ruled by biology. And we all just wanted a boyfriend. And maybe you did want a husband. (laughs) I was surrounded by very young girls who all they wanted out of life was to be a wife and a mom. And hey, if that's what you wanted, that's totally fine. But I think the more relatable approach is that we all just wanted a boyfriend. So continuing this conversation, she gives a really interesting anecdote, and I'm going to read it word for word because this, this was so profound to me. And I, and I read through this, and I just felt, I felt like I was there. I felt like this could have been a conversation that I had. So I'm going to read what she says. During a CILT Bible study, we discussed how to react, as Christians, to the temptations of entertainment. One girl described the difficulty of liking the Backstreet Boys since they don't promote Christian values, citing A.J. McLean's tattoo of the number 69. Because, you know, that's not good, she trailed off. We looked away as she spoke, drawing patterns into the dirt with twigs. Puffin jumped in. No, it's very good. Our heads shot up in unison. We stared at our counselor, a no-nonsense woman in her 30s, mouths agape when you're married. I don't want you to think that those things are bad. They can be very good for people who are married. It was the most progressive viewpoint I remember hearing from her. Someone chimed in that the 69 tattoo was actually for his zodiac symbol, Cancer. Puffin then explained that astrology was a sin, and I remained confused and chastened. And this spoke out to me on multiple levels. First of all, just the simple fact that AJ McLean is the sexiest of all the Backstreet Boys, and 69 or cancer, I'm here for all of it. But anyway, it's a lot. It's a lot of conflicting information for a 15-year-old girl. When you're being told to look at a boy as a tree, because you don't hug or kiss a tree, you wouldn't even talk to a tree, To have a conversation about how you shouldn't listen to Backstreet Boys because one of them has a 69 tattoo or a cancer tattoo or whatever. And then to hear your counselor say, no, 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 sex is great as long as you're married. And I just, I read through this, I felt my own confusion and shame and sort of embarrassment well up. I'm 31 years old and I still carry that shame to an extent, and conversations like this are conversations that I've had, and they confuse me just as much as a 31-year-old as they did when I was 16. And we will get into this more in future episodes, but this actually touches on one of the more uncomfortable things I encountered in Christian culture, which was this weird obsession with sex. But married sex, specifically, because if you're familiar with the culture, sex is bad, right? Especially when you're unmarried. But then you have the youth pastor who thinks he's cool up there in his affliction t-shirt talking about his smoking hot wife. Or you have the camp's guest speaker who takes the boys to give them their talk while you're being told all about how your body is sinful inherently and causing your brothers in Christ to stumble. Talking to them about, quote, good petting. And yeah, I will get into that more later. And it's creepy, it's creepy, and it sends mixed messages. But this is an episode about summer camp, not about sex, so let's move on. Another thing Katie talks about in her essay is that one of the more beautiful things about her experience with this camp was all of the friendships she made. And she talks about how there was this sort of unspoken sisterhood Um, She, for example, she tells an anecdote about getting her period and walking around with, you know, a stain on her shorts. And she was just treated so kindly. And when I say she was treated kindly, I mean that nobody made a big deal about it. They just kind of let her get cleaned up and change, and if you've ever been a menstruating 13-year-old, you know that it can be really awkward and even traumatic when you accidentally bleed on yourself and somebody feels the need to tell you all about it in front of everybody. So it's one little example, right, but it's kind of a beautiful one of just the way these girls formed this sisterhood. And this is another moment in this essay where I found myself thinking, wow, I really can't relate. I feel like the camps that I attended, there was more of a competition amongst the girls than camaraderie. And I'm not sure if that's because it was not an all-girls camp. There were boys present. A part of me thinks that maybe some of it came from the fact that Some of us went to public school while some of us attended the private Christian schools in the area. I'm not sure what caused it, but reading her essay and reading about Katie's experience with this beautiful sisterhood that was formed amongst the campers and the counselors, I feel a little jealous and I feel thankful that somebody had an experience like this because I certainly didn't and I wish I had. Maybe that would have improved my overall camp experience, who knows. And along these same lines is the last point from Katie's essay that I wanna touch on. And that's that she talks about the older she gets, sort of missing her friends back home more and more when she goes to camp. So throughout the piece, she talks about having her camp friends and her home friends and how those two worlds never really mix. And I can totally relate. My camp friends were people that I went to church with and went to school with. Um, The girl that I was closest with who I would bunk with and just kind of hang out with at camp was one of my good friends at the beginning of high school, but we actually grew apart in high school and I sort of found a new group and she found a new group. And so we drifted in school and we still hung out church-wise. It was kind of weird And I had never really thought about the weirdness of this until I read Katie's essay. And as my friendship with my new group of friends grew, I started to feel like, hey, being away during the summer, even for only a week, I'm missing out. Katie talks about missing out on inside jokes and fun activities that her home friends were doing while she was at camp and just kind of not being able to make up for that lost time. And I feel that, especially once I got to like summer before freshman year, the other uh, few years that I went to camp as a camper, I really felt that. I felt like I was leaving my friends to go do this thing that I was supposed to do that I didn't really want to do. And I don't think I had really come to terms with the fact that I didn't really want to do that. And it was just really complicated. And even though my experience with camp was never quite like Katie's, it was never as positive as Katie's, I still feel where she's coming from as far as maybe you're outgrowing this situation that has always meant something to you, but maybe you're starting to question why and maybe you're starting to realize that there might be better things out there for you. So towards the end of her essay, she talks about a time when she attended a camping trip, sort of leading up to what would actually end up being her last summer attending camp at all. And she talks about this camping trip that she went on with a few of the other counselors and how she actually took her yearbook from school because she wanted to share that part of her life with her camp friends and how nobody was really receptive to it. And that's heartbreaking enough. but. The story continues that part of why she wanted to share the yearbook was because a boy, an exchange student that she had a crush on, had written something really lovely in her yearbook, and she shares how not only was nobody really receptive to looking through her yearbook with her, but she talks about how the yearbook actually got damaged, and the page with The lovely message from the boy she had a crush on got completely ruined when her yearbook got wet. And she talks about how the yearbook was inside her duffel bag and was actually the only thing that got wet and the only thing that got damaged. She thinks this is sort of a message from God and sort of a punishment from God. And I don't know, that whole story just absolutely shatters my heart. But the really interesting part comes next when she's traveling to camp, to camp camp for her last year and she gets lost. She explains that she's one of the few counselors who drives her own car up to the camp and I believe, if I remember correctly, she says this is the first year she's driving herself and she was trying to use MapQuest directions and she got lost and I'm just reading her story, thinking to myself, okay, you thought the ruined yearbook was a sign from God, but this feels like a much bigger sign. And she didn't really touch on that. And maybe that's just the way I see it in my position, totally removed from the situation. I don't know Katie in real life. Um, I would love to have a conversation with her sometime, but I don't know her in real life, and I don't know the rest of her story. Literally all I know is what I learned from her by reading this essay, but I just, I think that's so incredible. I mean, I feel for her. I feel for little 17-year-old Katie who got lost on her way to this place that meant so much to her for so much of her life. That must have been really scary and must have been really frustrating. But yeah, I, I do see that as a sign. So yeah, Katie's essay is called Losing My Religion at Christian Camp and I will link to it down below, and I highly recommend checking it out if you found any of these points at all relatable. highly recommend giving the whole thing a read. Beyond Katie's essay, when I was searching for experiences with camps that were a little more in line with my own, I did find a couple articles written by people associated with camp and or Christian culture, and these articles were more like, if you had a bad experience, Here's why. Here's what you did wrong. One basically blames you for not being positive or enthusiastic enough. Um, The person who wrote it, presumably a person, it does not even have uh, an author listed, which is funny. Um, They basically blame you for having a bad attitude if you had a bad experience with summer camp, which is just so problematic. I mean... Take a little ownership, take a little responsibility. If people are not having a good time at your camp, ask yourself why. But I don't want to pay too much mind to this article, although I will link to it below because it is something. It's literally called, Four Reasons I Had a Horrible Youth Camp Experience. It has an affiliate disclosure, so somewhere on this page there are Amazon links, I guess. I don't know. And it's on a website called christiancamppro.com. So there's really not much to be said for this article, if you even really want to call it that. Um, Just know that if you had a bad experience at a Christian summer camp, it's all your fault apparently. You would think that if anyone could, the guys over at Christian Camp Pro would be able to take a little accountability, but I guess not. And now the next article that I found, which feels a little more sinister, and here's why. On the surface, Justin Dieter's article on the five potential dangers of youth Christian camps that's what it's called. Danger is a strong word and it's really interesting the way that he's using it because as you look through his list and read his article, again, these dangers are not brought on by the people running the camps or the people charged with taking care of the kids attending the camps. These supposed dangers, as Justin describes them, are pretty much all the fault of the person attending the camp, which is already bad enough, but don't worry, sweetie, it gets much, much worse. Justin Dieter's list of five potential dangers of Christian youth camps is fascinating and is frankly a great example of the cognitive dissonance that exists in Christian culture in general. It seems to me that this list was put in place for parents because he talks about how you can avoid these potential dangers by choosing a good camp and he also says that you must spot these potential dangers because if you don't it could potentially lead to destruction in the spiritual lives of your students so yeah this is definitely aimed towards parents caregivers maybe youth pastors youth leaders people who are in charge of deciding where the kid goes to camp. So maybe that setup softens the blow a little bit, but this list, for the most part, is still very clearly placing the blame on the camper if their experience doesn't quite live up to their expectations, or, even worse, if they're harmed, if they experience one of these, quote, dangers, and it does put their spiritual life in jeopardy. It seems to me like the blame is on the camper, and that just does not sit right to me. So let's get into this list. The first thing on the list that Justin Dieter describes as a potential danger of attending a youth Christian camp is something he calls the Christian bubble. And he basically describes this as a Christian fantasy world that campers come live in for a week or however long they're at camp. And he talks about how this is a fantasy because everybody there has the same beliefs, right? They're all, quote, living for Jesus. And I think it's interesting how instead of looking at this as a positive, an opportunity to sort of surround yourself with your people and just kind of be immersed in the teachings that you want to follow and the spiritual beliefs that you have, he lists it as a danger. He says that Christian camp is like training soldiers at a kid's laser tag party. He calls real life a spiritual war zone, with real danger and temptation lurking in every corner. So if that's how you feel, why not take camp as an opportunity to teach kids how to make good choices? Make the right choices for them and their experience. For me, we were never allowed choices. We were never taught anything. We were shamed into behaving a certain way. For example, there was always a night where girls and boys were separated. Boys talked about, I have no idea what. I do have a memory that I mentioned previously in this episode of one guest speaker talking to them about something called good petting and something else called heavy petting, which... As a sheltered 14-year-old, I had no idea what he was talking about. Now I do, and I'm entirely creeped out, but I digress. The girls were basically shamed into dressing a certain way and acting a certain way, and basically, if our behavior didn't match the way that we were told to behave, we were sinful and we were bad. But then again, we were also trained to believe that our bodies and our presences were inherently sinful anyway. So as I'm sure you can imagine, it was a really uncomfortable, hurtful experience and one of my most vivid memories from summer camp. But anyway, back to Justin. So he has two takes here. First, he suggests that campers fake it at camp wearing a mask of hypocrisy to fit in in the christian bubble or kids go home to difficult living situations and just their real life situations he cites unchristian homes and quote lost friends situations that tempt and potentially hurt them and presuming that it's the lost friends that tempt and the unchristian homes that hurt again why aren't these places equipping their students with the tools they might need to deal with these situations? If having a friend who isn't a saved Christian is so traumatic for these students that Justin Dieter considers it a danger, why is the Christian bubble the thing that's, that's the problem here? Just come out and say the problem is having friends that aren't Christian right? Come out and say that living in a home with parents who don't go to church is dangerous because that's, those are the words on the page, Justin. That's what you're saying. And that is what I most definitely have a problem with. But like much of what we've covered today, it gets a lot worse. So under his bullet point of the Christian bubble as one of the dangers of summer camp, in his last sentence, Justin literally says that the problem with the Christian bubble is that many students fail to make any real changes in their lives when they get home because living for christ is much more difficult in the battlefield of life than the laser tag game of camp so are you sensing a recurring theme yet because i am once again the fault lies solely on the camper if you experience camp in this quote unquote christian bubble and go home and don't maintain that level of spirituality It's all your fault. It's just, it's all your fault. And I'm not really sure where he's going with this point. There doesn't seem to be any sort of consequences to this. I guess it's just frustrating to people like Justin. I don't know, maybe it's scary to Christian culture to realize that they might lose their young people to the world. Because Justin doesn't say that the danger when the campers get home is something like an abusive home or friends that are bad influences. No, he's very specific to say that the danger lies in kids who go home to quote unchristian homes and quote lost friends. Hmm. Those sound to me like things that are outside of the Christian bubble. So again, I say, what's the real problem here? Is it that they're in this fantasy world at camp, or is it that they can't maintain this fantasy world in all aspects of their life? And I just think this is so interesting, because in my experience with evangelical Christian culture, the entire culture is a bubble, and I always felt like I was just sort of adjacent to it. Even at my holiest, I felt like I was never good enough and I could see little 14-year-old me being Justin Dieter's worst nightmare. Because I was the embodiment of this so-called danger. I mean, my parents were Christians. They were pretty indoctrinated during my childhood. But like I've alluded to multiple times throughout this episode... I never really fit in with the church and once I got home from camp I went right back to my friends especially once my closest friends became people who didn't go to the same camp that I did didn't go to camp at all didn't go to church at all I just grew up and I grew away from the things that I was force-fed as a child and yeah I call that growing up I don't call it a danger but I also do want to point out that The entirety of evangelical Christianity is a Christian fantasy world, and I think that Justin's problem with kids going back to their real life is that their real life involves things that are outside the culture, and just because something doesn't fall within the tiny little box that evangelical Christianity provides doesn't mean it's bad. And if you truly do think it is bad, then why aren't you equipping these kids to deal with it? Why are you instead placing the blame on them for not being able to keep up this fantasy life when they get home? But I'm gonna leave this one alone. Let's move on to point number two. And point number two is a big one. Justin's point number two is spiritual manipulation. And he defines this in two different ways. First, he talks about students that have not yet been saved And how it's easy in this Christian bubble to, as he says, twist someone's arm into making a forced decision for Christ. So he mentions things like the loud music and having a very dynamic speaker and being surrounded by people who are totally fired up and just feeling the love and feeling the support and feeling the comfort in that situation, in that setting. And how when all of those aspects are just right, it's really easy to manipulate somebody into making this decision. The decision that we know in this culture is the biggest, most important thing you can do. And I would argue that, yet again, this is kind of a smaller version of what evangelical Christian culture does on a whole in that my experience has always been, that's the number one goal, convert as many souls as you possibly can at any cost and under any circumstance. So is that the goal here or is it not? I get not wanting to manipulate people into making that decision and I do admire Justin for actually calling this out, but the thing is, I think that Christianity as a whole has a tendency to manipulate people into making that decision A great example of this being missionary work, but that is yet another topic for another day. And so on the flip side of this, Justin talks about the potential spiritual manipulation of young Christians that are already saved and already, as he says, faithful and who, quote, evidently follow Jesus to begin with, questioning their salvation and questioning whether or not they're a good person or a good Christian. And this is really an afterthought in this section. He really doesn't go into much detail, so unfortunately I I can't explain what he means or where this is coming from, and I certainly don't want to put words in somebody else's mouth, but I can totally see this happening, and I actually have an experience that kind of relates to this. So during what I'm pretty sure was my last summer attending camp as a camper, my counselor was this girl from my church. Um, If I remember correctly at the time, she was probably in her early 20s. I knew her relatively well. I didn't particularly like her. Um, She was always kind of mean and kind of rude and stuck up, but she was nice enough and she was fun as a counselor. So during this quintessential infamous last night at camp, the one where the spiritual manipulation really comes into play, while we were all participating in this very exhibitionist attempt at worship and all of that, it really is a huge production. It's really kind of frightening I noticed that she was sitting off to the side with her brother and she was crying and he was kind of consoling her and, and I could see that they were talking and I you know I was kind of thinking to myself wow I hope everything's okay you know I hope it, I hope they didn't get bad news or whatever well after the service when we were all kind of circled up with our uh, individual cabin groups her brother who I should mention was only two years older than me so younger than her Um, approached our circle and kind of encouraged her to share with us what they had been talking about. And nosy little me, I'm like, ooh yeah, I gotta find out what's going on, right? As it turns out, during the very emotionally manipulative last night at camp, where we're all supposed to confess our sins and rededicate our lives to Christ, all that, she felt the need to share with her brother that she had committed the ultimate sin as a young Christian woman, She had sex, she was no longer a virgin, and he encouraged her to tell us all about it so as to set a good example for us, or rather, an example of what we're not supposed to do. So yes, friends, not only did she tell us all about how she lost her virginity, she was guided to do so because she first told her brother all about it. Because, and this is, yet again, another topic for another day, virginity is heavily tied to patriarchy and evangelical Christianity and most often seen as something that our dads are in control of But what do you do when you're in this situation at camp and you just you just feel so called to Confess and your dad's not there Eh, Your brother will do right and this is by far one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me at camp I am sitting here telling the story to strangers 16 years later, so obviously it stuck, and I think that this actually might have been one of the first moments in my life where I thought, this is weird. Why am I in this conversation? Why am I sitting here listening to this person talk about this? Why did she feel the need to tell her brother this? Why did he feel the need to make her tell us this? And it was just all bad. It was all bad. So this spiritual manipulation really happens and it manifests in some pretty insidious ways and it can be really damaging to young people. So yeah, I, I guess I have to agree with Justin that the potential spiritual manipulation that can happen and often does happen, that's the part he misses, at camp can be really damaging. It can be really dangerous. Justin's third potential danger for summer camp is conviction that's confused by emotionalism. He recalls one of his students asking about a fellow camp goer. The student asked, why does this girl get emotional and cry every year at camp only to go back to living in sin as soon as she returns home? I would answer that that's called being human. (laughs) But Justin goes on to explain how emotional of an experience camp can be. And he says, it is so easy to confuse an intensity of emotion as a true spiritual experience. He seems to have a real problem with what he calls worldly grief. He cites author Jonathan Edwards and medieval monk Thomas Kempis before driving his point home with a terrifying Bible verse, which reads, "Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death." 2 Corinthians 7:10. He then goes on to say that true biblical sorrow and mourning over sin leads to repentance. An emotional experience at camp that doesn't lead to true repentance isn't godly grief, but a worldly grief that produces death. And you know he typed that last word so smugly like, mm, got him. But I have questions. First and foremost, is this kind of really gatekeeping grief? He says that intensity of emotions is not a sure sign of God's work, but is so quick to judge those that do express themselves emotionally, just like his student was. And death? Really? One of the tenets of Christianity is this belief in eternal life. But like, Justin knows we're all gonna die, right? Or is he, and by extension, this quote from the Bible, suggesting that the penalty of worldly grief is eternal death, aka hell? But my biggest issue is why the supposed emotionalism happens at all. He chalks it up to, yet again, the Emotion in the music and being swept up around people who all believe the same way you do. He specifically cites that last night of camp, that quintessential come-to-Jesus moment. If those moments are so problematic, why do camps continue to have them? If emotionalism, as he calls it, is potentially so dangerous, why create it? Why encourage it? And I would argue that those big last night of camp come to Jesus moments are the reason why events like this exist for young people in the church. So I don't understand how Justin is able to call this a potential danger without saying that this danger is inherent to evangelical culture. Again, one of the biggest, most important aspects of evangelical Christianity is this recruiting people, this converting people. One of the Bible verses that is forever seared into my brain, no matter how far I deconstruct, is the one about the Great Commission and how we're supposed to go and make disciples of every nation. Um, I remember hearing kids my age at 12, 13, 14, talk about how they dedicated their life to Christ when they were three. How they said that prayer when they were three years old. And the common denominator in all of those stories is that they, were, that they were led to by their parents, that they said that prayer under the guidance of their parents. Young people in evangelical Christianity don't have a lot of choices, don't have a lot of options for themselves, and don't have a lot of opportunity to learn and to explore their beliefs on their own. So the culture needs these emotionally manipulative, spiritually manipulative events like camp because it helps keep the young people in line and it helps keep them on what they consider the right track spiritually. I mean, think about my counselor that summer. What would have happened if she didn't feel the need to tell her brother about her horrible indiscretion? Maybe she would have gone on to not end up marrying the first person she had sex with. And yeah, that's a true story. So people like Justin can call it a potential danger all they want. At the end of the day, people like Justin also deep down know that events like this are necessary to make young Christians act the way they think they should. And I know this is a bold statement, but it's a statement I stand by based on my own personal experiences and the experiences of the people around me. It's one I stand by. Justin's fourth point and the last one that I'm going to touch on is that camps perpetuate a roller coaster Christian life. To Justin, this means that the group he calls immature Christians experience the high of being at camp, in the Christian bubble, if you will, but then lose that joy and desire to follow Christ when they get home. He explains that people with this mindset look forward to the next high, the next camp, the next retreat conference, mission trip, etc. to feel close to God and, quote, hope the momentum of the last event carries them up the hill to the next one. And again, I have some questions. Is it that the supposed high of camp is a bad thing? Or is it that your religious institution can't hold the attention of your young people otherwise? What Justin goes on to address this, kind of, the last paragraph of this section reads, This sort of inconsistency long-term can be very damaging to our spiritual lives. We must help our students learn how to follow Jesus every day and not depend on big events to get them through. We must teach them the discipline of studying the scriptures, the habit of prayer, and the priority of regularly attending worship and participating in the life of the church. And I just... So then do it! Teach them! Yet again, this seems to blame campers, in this case, quote, immature Christians, specifically, for what is very clearly a shortfall of the church. Teach them to do all those things. If those things are important, which I can see how those things would be important to any religious belief, teach them how to prioritize those things. Teach them how to enjoy those things. Or better yet, make those things enjoyable and make them practical for these young people and other immature Christians to participate in. You know, growing up, I had friends that attended youth group but didn't come on Sunday mornings. And yeah, the church probably looked down on them. But the fact of the matter is, Sunday mornings just didn't work for them for whatever reason. And the reason doesn't matter. They were there on Wednesday nights for youth group. And rather than seeing that as something great, as you know ministering to kids that otherwise wouldn't be involved in church somebody like Justin has a problem with those people has a problem with those young christians and truthfully that right there is the root of one of my biggest issues with evangelical christianity as a whole nothing is ever good enough uh josh and adrian of the dirty rotten church kids podcast talk about this quite a bit in many of their episodes um, when especially when they dunk on Mark Driscoll because he's one of these, you know, infamous pastors who his entire brand is all about how we're all sinners and God hates all of us. And that, I, I honestly think that that root of evangelical Christianity is probably one of the things that pushed me away before I even realized that that's what was happening. So yeah, I don't have much else to say about this point. I just let young people enjoy camp and maybe don't treat it as so much of a fatal character flaw if they don't enjoy Sunday morning church as much as they enjoy camp. I mean, God, at my summer camp they literally had us out there playing football in the mud. Can an hour and a half of having to sit still and be quiet really compete with football in the mud when you're 14 years old? I mean, I don't think so, but hey, that's just me. And Justin's last point in this article, which I've already said I'm not gonna touch on that much, is that camp can potentially bolster this cynical attitude towards the students home church which i mean i kind of agree with this point but to me this one's really just a summation of everything that we've already been talking about i mean obviously The games and the mud pits and the speaker and the music and the food, the camp food, and being around all your friends for a week during the summer is just not the same as going to church and sitting still and being quiet for an hour and a half every Sunday morning. And it's never going to be. And I don't think Justin's necessarily blaming the campers here. You create this environment. You create these experiences for your students. So either do or don't. But that kind of just leads me back to the point I sort of trailed off on a few minutes ago. We're often made to feel like we have to act a certain way and we have to participate in a certain way to be seen as worthy in the eyes of the church. Not even in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the church. And I cannot fathom pointing out all of these things as potential dangers and not realizing that you're the reason why they exist. Christian culture creates the Christian bubble and maintains it. Christian culture spiritually and emotionally manipulates young people and just anybody for that matter. Christian culture perpetuates this roller coaster Christian life by creating these events and borderline forcing their young people to participate in them. So, yeah, Christian summer camp can be a wonderful experience, but it can also be very damaging. And that's really the note I want to end this episode on, but I'm not done with this topic. I anticipate another two, maybe three episodes that dive a little bit deeper into this topic. Now that I've kind of set the scene with some of my own personal stories, as well as Katie's story, and given you a little background on how the idea of summer camp operates within the larger landscape of evangelical Christian culture, I want to explore further, so be on the lookout for that. But for now, I think this is a good place to wrap up, so my name's Elizabeth, and this is the Runaway Eve podcast, and remember, the Zodiac is sinful, especially if you're a Cancer. Bye!